thinking they could hear us in Uganda. There is, um, behind the house that we used to own up in the Williamsport area, there, there was a little strawberry patch that was the best in Lycoming County right behind our home. In fact, we could look out our back window and see those little strawberries growing up, that patch growing up. Uh, and when, um, you know, spring arrived and, and June arrived, my wife would always convince me, hey, let's go strawberry picking. And so uh, one day we, we did that. We arrived. Our neighbors owned the patch, and they stood there as we approached the patch, and they, they, they were like the, the lords of that little patch. They had their little, you know, they had a tent there, and, and uh, they decided who got to go in. And, and, they, and, and as you approached them, they would even tell you where the really good strawberries were. They'd say, you know, go over there, back, like pass all, see all those people bent over, hunched over. You, you go all the way over here. There's some really great fresh strawberries over there. And I remember Christine and I, that one morning, we passed all these other pickers there in the patch. We found that section of really ripe strawberries, and we began to pick. And you can tell how excited I get when I talk about strawberries because my fingers got all red, and we had our little buckets full of strawberries destined for strawberry pie. Amen. We're preaching now. <laughs> Being sent into God's global harvest is just like that little operation of our neighbors behind there with their strawberry patch. There's a Lord of the harvest. He has a harvest ready. It's a, it's a really large harvest. And he wants pickers for the patch. Our text this morning is going to be in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to be in verses 35 to 38. There's a lot of directions that we could go with this this morning, but to very, keep it very, very simple, um, this message is simply entitled, The Lord of the Harvest. My prayer this morning, O Lord, is that the power of the Lord of the Harvest would just be branded on our hearts and minds, that we would get a picture of the Lord of this harvest. That that's what we would have the impression of, because if there's anything for us to go out of here doing, it's going to be because of who he is and what he's up to. So if we leave here just stunned with the lordship of Christ over his harvest, it will have been a wonderful morning together of worship. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And at this point in our minds in this text, what should be coming to mind is actually Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34. And you're going, what in the world is in Ezekiel 34? <laughs> in Ezekiel 34, it's a section where the Father is speaking, Yahweh is speaking, I should say, to his people Israel, and he is scolding the shepherds of Israel for eating the sheep, fleecing the sheep, taking advantage of the sheep. And God says, I'm done with you. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to come and shepherd the people myself. And he says specifically, he's going to put upon a throne, the throne of David, his servant, who will come and rule and be the shepherd of his people. So as we're looking at this text, we're going to understand that there's the Father's eternal plan as the king of all, and he's going to enact this will of his through this one that is to come to the throne and shepherd his people, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what should be in our minds when we get into verse 37. And then he said, this is Jesus, to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This morning, we're going to talk about three realities of Christ's lordship over the harvest. We understand that that God the Father has an eternal plan, right? He's He's chosen his people, and he's enacted his redemption plan through Christ. In fact, we understand that reality number one simply in this text is that Jesus is that king. He is the Lord of the harvest. In the book of Colossians, Paul wrote very distinctly about Christ. He said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him, that's by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Christ. And as he As we read in verse 35, we get this picture that he is in absolute command. Matthew unveils Jesus as this one that was predicted in Ezekiel 34 to come and reign on the throne of David. In fact, every time that you open the gospel of Matthew, you should be thinking king. It presents Jesus as king. Every chapter that you read in Matthew has like a crown hanging on it, saying over and over, Jesus is the king. Matthew chapter 1, one of, you know, I I know that for many of you in here, one of your favorite places in the Bible to read are genealogies, right? Matthew chapter 1, I love reading it. It's the genealogy that points people to this is who Jesus is. He is the long-expected king. Here he is. In Matthew chapter 2, we find the Magi coming. And what are they doing? They're bowing before the king and worshiping Jesus as the king. In John, uh, Matthew, or Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, we find him preparing the way for the coming of the king. In chapter, uh, the end of that chapter, the father is confirmed confirming that this is the king. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, at the end, the crowds are astonished at his teaching. They're just there with their mouths dropped open because it says in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. This was one who came like a king. And when we get to Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, we have Jesus with this kingly authority walking through a harvest of people. Town to town, village to village, rubbing shoulders with people and and, and doing it in a commanding way. In fact, In Matthew 9, verse 18, we find a ruler kneeling before Christ, begging him to heal his daughter. Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. In Matthew chapter 13, he shares a parable about the wheat and the tares, as if there's a harvest, and He is presented as the master of the harvest in Matthew 13. The son of man. He has command over this thing. Jesus walked with authority among a harvest of sinners. It says in verse 35 that what he did, he went through all the cities and villages. What's he doing? He's teaching with this command with this authority. And the first place that he went was in the synagogues in verse 35. Jews were the initial harvest. 
Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, he instructed his disciples to go nowhere among the Gentiles. Now, for most of us, I think in this room, that would, that would be us, okay? We, we would be among the Gentiles. And understand, here in, in, in Matthew 9, the first place he's going is to the Jews. And in fact, he, the first place he sends his disciples is to the Jewish nation. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of even the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By the end of Matthew, however, just a few chapters later, he sends his disciples into all the nations. Aren't you glad he did that? Aren't you glad that the Lord of the harvest had a plan to send his message to the nations? Are you glad for that this morning? We would not be here had that not been part of his eternal plan. Jesus is in command of who and how and when in the harvest. He sends where he wills, when he wills, to whom he wills, according to the will of the Father. I'll ask you this question as, as we consider these things this morning. Has it occurred to you that the Lord of the harvest has assigned you to a harvest not just to a job not just to a family but to a harvest be thinking about that as we go through this Jesus you can see this authority of his lordship as he commands the message look in verse 35 he goes through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming something. What is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus proclaimed the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, that word gospel means just good news. You've, you, you've probably been around long enough to, to understand that idea that the gospel means good news. Maybe you haven't, maybe you don't know what that is, and today's the first Day you're learning that, but it just means good news. But here's the issue. To the Roman world in which Jesus walked in his time, in that time when he was here in flesh, the word gospel was associated with the worship of the emperor. That's where this word came from. That's what it was associated with, the worship of the emperor. Many Caesars claimed to be gods. Caligula had a statue of himself erected in the Jewish temple. Nero regarded himself as the savior of the world. So when emperors would defeat an enemy, what they would do is they would send heralds out into the villages and, uh, of the newly conquered people, and they would say, hey, great news, good news. The emperor has saved us. Give him your allegiance. That's where this word came from. When, when a, an heir to the throne was born, those heralds would be sent out into the, vi the villages and into the cities, and they would go into the center of those villages and proclaim, Good news! The emperor's son has been born. Honor him as the king to come. That's where this word gospel came from that's the word that God chose to use to speak of his son the good news that the king has come this long expected king on the throne of David good news this is not just you know, the newspaper, okay? This is good news of the kingdom. When Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, he was proclaiming his kingly victory over sin. And he was calling people to follow him. His victory came not as people expected. 
In Matthew 16, we discover that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 16, verse 21. So you see, this was not anything like the political kings around him. This was a a, a different type of kingdom, a different type of victory. Christ's victory did not come through political power, but through resurrection power. God's kingdom came through the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection from the dead so that we could be a people who are justified, who are brought into a brand new kingdom under his authority and under his rule. Paul wrote about this in Colossians 1. He said, he, that's Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. You see, that's the issue. It's that there is a holy creator of all the universe, and you and I have fallen short of that glory. And we stand condemned, rightly so. So when Christ came and his mission was to be killed, he was being killed for our sins. Because of our sin. And the wonderful truth about this is that he took the punishment that you and I deserved before a holy God. And so he goes through these towns and villages and he's calling people into this kingdom. Our problem is that we've sinned against the king. But the beauty of this is this, that the king is the one who saves us. He is Lord. We are his subjects. And the good news is this, that not only do we step into his kingdom the moment that we trust in him and put our faith in him, But Peter wrote, for in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It ain't over in this life. He's calling us to something more. He's calling us to something greater. He's calling us to something eternal. Well, as we read here, he's proclaiming this gospel of his kingdom, and he's proving it. Look how he does this in verse 35. And he's healing every, notice that word, every disease and every affliction. So here's what's happening in this verse. He is proving, authenticating, that he really is the king. That he really is in control. He's proving it. He is in command. And in Matthew chapter 28, or I'm sorry, in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, you can go back and read, I I mean, like, everything's leading up to, to, to this summary of what's been happening in verse 35. This is what Jesus has been doing. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing lifelong illnesses instantly. And not just one here and there. He's doing all of them. He's healing everyone. Just like that. So, you know, I have this picture of him just kind of like regally. Now, he's humble, but he's also regal in that nothing seems to be able to stop his will from being accomplished. Just look at an example in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, I mean, he heals a leper. He heals multiple people. What I want you to see in verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, his mother, uh, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Notice that it's immediate. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many 
who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and look at this, and healed how many? All. All who were sick. And this, verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Look back at Isaiah chapter 53 for a moment. That's where it comes from. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. And this is what's important to see. Now, Jesus is authenticating his authority as the Lord of the harvest by doing this healing, healing them all. He's authenticating the message of the gospel of his kingdom. Look in chapter 53, verse 4. I want you to notice what the real issue is. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are what? Healed. What's happening here? As Jesus is going around and healing these people, I want you to understand that he's authenticating his message. And and, and I want us to see something, that his issue, his his concern, is not just the physical well-being of these people. His concern is something deeper. His concern is the salvation from their sins. The woundedness that has come because of sin. That's what he's concerned about. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, we see it. He's he's sitting in Matthew's house, meeting with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. And and the the religious leaders, they've got a problem with that. And and so they, they, they address this issue, and Jesus responds to them in verse 12, Matthew 9, verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the concern of the king. Our work in Sierra Leone is among pastors dealing with the the aftermath of a bloody civil war. I think I mentioned it to you last week. If you ever watched the movie Blood Diamond, that's, those are the places that we have the opportunity to teach. Some of the people that I have met, I mean, they're just villages full of amputees. Either having a limb chopped off with a machete or literally been shot as a child by rebel soldiers. Our training there is held in an orphanage with children who lost their parents to Ebola. The physical and emotional scars of that place run very, very deep. But without a doubt, it is the spiritual healing from sin that those people need. I was reminded of that when a group of orphans helped us one day to record our attendance when we were doing training there. We began to discuss the gospel, and by the end of the night, there were two young ladies, Sarah and Amisha, who were orphans who began to understand that the greatest need that they have was forgiveness of sin. And what a delight it has been to watch these young ladies, to sit with them even after they made a profession of faith in Christ, and and see their eyes begin to light up with the understanding that they now have a father. A father in heaven. And they're in his kingdom. Jesus is Lord of the harvest, and his message is the gospel. And I want to ask you today, if you have not received that message of the gospel, Today may be the very day of your salvation that you would receive this message.
that you would respond to the call. The king has come. He has, he has won his victory. And it is a victory over sin. Would you accept his sacrifice in your place? Today may be the day that you say, yes. Well, number two this morning, the second reality is this, that Jesus has a heart for the harvest. Back in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus in this regal authority going throughout the villages, proclaiming the gospel with his with his authority and improving it by healing every disease, every affliction. In verse 36, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is not a heartless king like Nero, who murdered Christians, lit them up in his garden, to light, his, to light the way in his garden. Nor is Jesus a self-centered king like Caligula, who erected a statue of himself in the midst of God's temple. Jesus looked upon See, in verse 36, the crowds, and that literally means just mobs of people. That's what that means. It's a sea of people. And when he saw them, he had something called compassion. And now, that, that word means to be moved so emotionally that you feel it in your gut. <laughs> it's, kind of a, it's kind of a word of, that, that really is a word for your guts. He was being moved so much that he felt it. Jesus has, we might say, this intense pity and affection for, for these lost people. And from the original language here, we can deduce something from this, that this was a kind of constant state of being. In other words, as Jesus was going about from this town to that town to this town to that town, he just continually felt compassion in his gut for these people. What brought about this gut-wrenching pity in the Lord? Well, it was pretty clear here in verse 36, people were harassed. Now, the first time I ever preached from, from this text, uh, I preached to uh, during a, a child Sunday, okay? And I've been criticized by some people that, that care for me quite closely, <coughs> my family, uh, namely my daughters, who said, Dad, I can't believe you said this on ch ch Children's Day. But here's what this means, okay? This, this word, to, to be harassed in your Bible, really probably a better translation would be to be flayed. Skinned alive. It really is the word for the skinning of an animal pelt. They're being spiritually skinned alive. And this is bothering Jesus. Stirring within him this compassion that he feels within his gut. This, this really helps us to understand it. Uh, uh, you know, when, when Hebrews talks about Jesus being a high priest, who is tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. I mean, this is his humanity coming out. He is sensing the, despera the desperation of these people who are like people just skinned alive. That word helpless means that it means to just be thrown down to the ground. You, Luke used this word to describe the anchor of a ship being tossed overboard. I mean, that's what it was like. These people are just kind of tossed down to the ground. That's what happens to weak, vulnerable sheep that have no shepherd. Is Ezekiel 34 coming to your mind? <laughs> 
They have no direction. They have no protection. They wander in sin, and they end up flayed and tossed to the ground by not only sin, but by the predators. Can I just ask you for a moment, do you see people like that? i got to ask myself that because I need sanctified right there. Do I see people as skinned alive and thrown to the ground by sin and predators? Lord, help me to understand. Lord, give me your eyes to see this. Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Look, wolves are hungry for sheep. And they leave behind nothing but dead carcasses. Um, Again, Ezekiel 34 should come to mind. But here's the thing. Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, that is Jesus, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Sheep need a good shepherd to save them. And my friends, there is only one, and his name is Jesus, Lord of the heart. I wish I could picture for you today the seas of people that I get to see around the world. In Kampala, Uganda, and Pastor Joe and Lance, they'll be traveling through there probably in the next couple days. In that city, there is, I'm just going to use it so you understand, but there is a church that has 40,000 in attendance every Sunday. 40,000. 40,000, and I want to tell you what, those are sheep wandering in sin and darkness. And all that the pastor of that church does, I I could tell you, I could go on about this, I just don't want to waste my time on it. He, He preaches the prosperity gospel to these people, these poor people. And you know what he does? He lives high on the hog from them with his mistress and not his wife in a very large house with lots and lots of money. That church is called House of Prayer. I think I would rename it Den of Thieves. Oh, that we would see the harvest through the eyes of our Savior. Those 40,000, they come every week thinking that they're hearing the truth. But they only end up flayed, skinned alive, and thrown to the ground. Oh, that we would just feel it in our gut, the kind of compassion that our Lord has when he looks out upon those crowds like sheep with no shepherd. Because they're harassed and helpless, skinned and thrown to the ground. So Jesus, we see, has, number one, he is the Lord of this harvest. He has the command. He has the kingly authority. But he also has a heart for his harvest. Now, number three this morning, I want us to see this in verses 37 and 38, that Jesus has a plan for his harvest. Now, you should be feeling in your gut right now, that's terrible. (laughs) This view that we've been given so far is terrible. What's going to happen? What's the plan for this harvest? Lord, you're, you're in charge of this. What's your plan? Good news, he has a plan. It's in verse 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, at this point, they should be feeling a bit in their gut. The harvest is plentiful. It's absolutely overwhelming. 
but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Out of his infinite heart of compassion, Jesus is is describing these suffering crowds as a harvest. That's not the only time that he did this. In fact, he did it several times. In Matthew 13, I referred to it earlier. Uh, and he told of the sower scattering God's word in the soil. In, in Ma- Mark chapter 4, he spoke about how the, the harvest, it grows. And when it's ripe, out comes the sickle. There will be a judgment that happens with this harvest. In John 4, as a crowd of Samaritans came looking for him because of the woman at the well and her testimony. Jesus told his disciples, lift up your eyes. The harvest is right in front of you. It's coming. It's white for harvest. Now, a harvest is simply a a crop that's ready to be reaped. Listen, I, 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 well, not this week because I like had a, almost 50 year old moment and turned my back and tweaked it so now I can't run right now but as I've been running around (laughs) since I've lived here uh, jogging whatever I'm not I'm not entering the race that just to be clear (laughs) you're gonna hear that later Uh, as I'm running around you know I'm just looking at fields and fields and fields of corn and soybean around here Who's going to harvest that? You know, there's a lot out there, right? I mean, we're, we're like in corn land here, I think. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And as Jesus is, is, is talking of these harassed, helpless sheep, he then uses this illustration for his disciples. This is a harvest, isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> it is enormous. It's plentiful. There's no shortage of harvest. God has multitudes of people ready to respond. Today, we either fall, uh, we either fail, I should say, we either fail to see it or we fail to care. You sometimes feel like you wake up in the morning, you're like complete, like orientation zero. Like I, I, I just can't see yet today. You know, last week you talked about to live as Christ, to die as gain. You know, like I think if if I were to be able to just wake up in the morning and start with that, I might begin to see people as the harvest, as for what they really are, skinned alive and thrown to the ground by sin or false teaching. say you know like Jesus he he looked at this he he helps his disciples to see this enormity of the harvest and I want to say that I believe today it's just as big just as plentiful as it always has been this is still the situation we're in but I also believe this and I, I want to know brothers and sisters do you believe this that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes Do you believe that still? That that is the solution for this problem? Yet there is a piece of this that remains that this is plentiful. But Jesus says in verse 37, but the laborers are few. That is, laborers who are fearless enough To preach that gospel. You say, you know, couldn't Jesus, I mean, he's the Lord of the harvest here, right? Commissioned by the Father. Couldn't he just save them? Yes. Yes, he could do that. He could do that today if he wanted. He could decide, this is what's happening. I'm just going to do that. But Jesus has 
a better plan than that. (laughs) He calls it laborers. Are you a laborer? You know what it means to work? Jesus calls his solution to this problem labors. It's the same word that Paul used when he wrote to Timothy. And he said, do your best to present yourself to God. One approved, a worker, a laborer who has no need to be ashamed. The primary laboring that we have to do is the spreading of the gospel, period. You're like, Mike, you're the missionary. You're supposed to preach these things. I know that. But there's a problem. The problem is that the the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And I want to tell you what, like I've sat through missionary preachers saying these same things before. And that has just. But when you get into the field. You see it. You see it. Now, I want you to go back to a question I asked you a few minutes ago, and it was this. Do you see that you have been planted in a harvest rather than just in a job? Do you see that God has planted you in a neighborhood or in a harvest? It's astonishing to me that he would even want us to participate in what he's doing. It's astonishing to me every time I see him save someone. I, I, I think of, there, there's, I don't want to spend too long on this, but there, there, there was a, a day that we had an opportunity to go, this was in Sierra Leone, and, and preach the gospel at this open public forum. And we just kind of gathered around a few people and we began to preach the gospel. Just a team of us, small teams, we're together just sharing and translating and blah, blah, blah. And I see this one man standing kind of at the back, and the whole time he's doing this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I thought, oh, he must be a Christian. He's getting this, you know. He must know this already. He's, like, excited that we're doing this. Well, at the end, he came up to me and my name's Muhammad. He said, I've been a Muslim all my life, but I'm ready to receive Christ. And you know what? We didn't have to study Islam to preach the gospel. We just did it. God had appointed that day to be the day for that man. Previous to that day, he had been skinned alive and thrown to the ground. But that day, he became a child of God. And here's the amazing thing to me I think about. This is what blows my mind. That day was ordained before the beginning of time. Muhammad was ordained before the beginning of time. Jesus is the one who, who sent us out to go do this laboring. He could have just snapped his finger and we wouldn't have seen any of this. But instead, he allows us to participate, to go, and to just share the message that he's already created, the message of the kingdom. The king has come. And the Spirit of God saves that man that night. See how much more beautiful that is than just did it. It makes you understand that from the beginning to the end, this is his harvest, 100%. And he's the Lord of it. And we get to participate in it. Amen? But here, look what Jesus does. We've got to finish this. Then he said to his disciples, so there's this problem. Harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And here's the solution to this problem. Pray. I mean, I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, wait a second. That's the solution to the problem. 
we know what has to happen, Lord. We, we've got to go out there and get in the field. We, we got to run out there and go. And we got the gospel and we got to do this. And he says, look, this is the, pro- the solution to the problem. You pray. You pray earnestly. And that word for uh, praying earnestly is the word to beg. In fact, it is, is used later on in scripture in, in Luke to speak of a father who begs Jesus to heal his child. Now, I know what that's like. I shared with you last week that, you know, I had, uh, I, praise the Lord, he's still here with us, but I have a son who had cancer as a 15-year-old. And I can still remember getting in the closet, falling to my knees, and begging God to heal my son. Because I had nowhere else to turn. God, please, you're the only one that can do this. That's the kind of word that Jesus used right here. That's the kind of word that will will make a distinction between whether or not we're just doing it out of rote obedience or doing it out of that compassion that we see in the Lord of the harvest. That we care enough to beg him, you must send laborers into the harvest, Lord. You must. Please, there is no other way. So recently, we've been meeting uh, with Spread of Grace and, you know, setting goals for the future and all that kind of stuff. And you know what our number one goal was? To ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest field. Because we have way more opportunities than we have people. And I'm telling you, there, when, when, when I see those 40,000 people, those tents, they just, there's so many people, there's just tents and tents and tents. And I know that every week they're hearing whatever it is that will draw them away from Christ. It lights a fire. I want to ask you today, I mean, there's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, and maybe there's one in here, but to figure this out. Would you pray? Would you beg the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest? Would you do that? Would you begin to just pray that way? Now, I want to give you a little bit of a warning to end this, okay? If you pray that, you be ready for how God wants to answer that. Moms, grandmothers, fathers, grandfathers, teenagers. I want to ask you something, young people in here. Would you begin to pray this? If you pray this, you be ready because God might just send you. His answer might just be this. Do you want that that bad? I'm going to send you. Well, Jesus told his disciples to beg the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest. And guess who he sent? Just a few verses later, chapter 10, verse 5. These 12, Jesus, Lord of the harvest, sent out. It's a risky prayer, but it's a worthy one. Would you pray, moms? And moms, if you pray it, What if the Lord says, okay, I'm going to take your daughter, your son, and I'm going to do what you just begged for? Dads, what if he says that to you? (laughs) Okay, you want this? I'm going to send your, your son, your daughter. You might be like me, and you can't hold a job, and you pray that, and then, you know, suddenly God says, whoop, okay, you're going. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He knows what he's doing. 
He's the king. And he has a plan. And that plan is you and me taking the gospel into the harvest. Father, this morning I want to thank you so much. I, we, we, we come to a text like this and we feel so uh, overwhelmed by it. So much here. I, I feel like we could just go weeks and weeks on this, but Lord, thank you for the heart of Christ. Thank you for the kingly authority of our Savior who has conquered sin and death. Thank you that he has a plan for his harvest and that that plan is driven, it is, it is, it is compelled out of a compassion for what he sees, the great need and the great size of the harvest. Thank you, God, that you would even allow us to participate with you in your eternal work for your eternal kingdom. We do not deserve that. But it is a delight to see you do it. I pray, God, and beg you today to send forth laborers into your harvest out of Calvary Bible Church. You've done it before. I ask you, Lord, in your mercy to do it again. Lord, I pray that you would rise up first and foremost a, a just a, a, a concerted, united effort to pray and to beg you. And I pray that you use people throughout all this in congregation, not only young people, but old people who may not be able to go, but boy, can they beg you. Boy, can they pray. I pray, Lord, that you will use them, you will ignite with them a passion to pray to you in this way, that, God, you would send forth laborers into your harvest. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.